You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 3. Focus this morning will be on 3.22 through 36. We'll be reading 3.9 through 36. John chapter 3, beginning verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not know the, understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming, at, coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us of a whitewashed envy. that 
sees your redeeming work in the world and wants some of the glory desiring it that it, it would happen in our sphere, in our camp, according to our work, with our name. Grant us the spirit of John that labors, labors faithfully, is willing to be forgotten so long as Christ be lifted high. And Father, for those gathered here that your wrath remains on their soul, grant them the new birth. Grant them faith and repentance. May they receive this testimony. The testimony of your word concerning Christ by your spirit. May they have eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In John 5, Jesus says, You sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father sent me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 5, 33-36. As the sun rises, the lamp is soon extinguished. As the sun increases in glory, the lamp is allowed to diminish in chapter 1 and verse 8, the apostle, speaking of the Baptist, wrote, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And so as John testified, I am not the light. It was then that he was a light. When he says, I am not the Christ, at that moment, he is a lamp. But as the light to which he testifies to rises, the lamp diminishes. As the sun waxes bright, the lamp wanes dim. And if it is the light that you love, if the reason that you love the lamp is for the light that it gives, then this does not diminish your joy in the least. Because there's not less light now, there is more. The reason to love a lamp is for the light that it gives. And the light that the lamp is giving is the testimony of Christ. And so now as John fades and Christ shines, your joy does not diminish, rather it increases. This is the last we will see of John in this gospel doesn't appear again. We're thankful for how he continues to speak by the word. The Spirit conveys the truth of it to us. He continues to speak to us. He continues to testify and witness. He continues to say to us, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're thankful. And in this gospel now, this being the last testimony of John, we're not sad that henceforth our gaze is focused directly on the Christ that he spoke of, that we see him no more. As we look at his final testimony, a lot of time is spent in verses 22 through 24 building the stage. For then to only disappear, basically. We see this stage, it's been erected a lot of time. You can tell it's exquisitely done. This is a finely crafted stage, and then it goes dark, and there's a spotlight. There are 
there are two solitary figures that are illuminated. There's a spotlight on John, and it's bright at first, and it begins to slowly fade. And then the other figure is himself light, unfading, unchanging, but we begin to recognize more and more of his glory, perceive it more and more. And yet, though the focus in this passage is on Jesus and John, a lot of time is spent on this setting for it to be quickly eclipsed. You need to realize that the Spirit didn't so elaborately set the stage for us for no reason, no purpose. This elaborate build isn't wasteful. And so as we look at the setting, consider how much is the same here. We have two rabbis. Jesus has already been referred to repeatedly as a rabbi. John, verse 26, they came to John, they being, verse 25, John's disciples. So they come to John and they say, Rabbi. So we have two rabbis, we have their disciples. Verse 25, John's disciples. Verse 22, Jesus and his disciples. Two rabbis, two disciples, we have the same activity. They're both baptizing. Everything's so similar, and the similarity, think if you're reading this well, you sense attention. It's like two quarterbacks being on the, same, on the field at the same time. You sense attention, or it's something like the tension you might feel whenever you say something like, does anyone have a... whatever it is. And two people, two eager people for you to choose their... I do, and it's in front of you. Now you've got to make a choice. That's a tension we feel... Only because we know egos are involved and fear of man's involved. It's a tension we feel because we have the same sinful inclination that I think we're going to understand John's disciples have in this instance. There is all this immediate sameness, and yet it should cause us as we're reading this to recall an expected difference that John already testified to. John one thirty three. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John testified, I have this baptism And the one who comes after me has a superior baptism. Now, this is not Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit here. But it is the Jesus whom you're expecting to have a superior baptism to that of John. And this is something that John the Baptist's making plain is spoken of in all three Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels. So, Matthew 3.11 I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Mark 1.8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What you're seeing here is John saying, he's been acting as quarterback, and he says, it's time to go out. And he moves to offensive center to get laid flat and be carried off the field, handing everything off to Christ. And understanding this tense the way you read the explanation that's given in verses 23 through 24. John was baptizing at Enon near Salem because, and three explanations follow, two immediate explanations, and then one encapsulating explanation as to why John is baptizing. He's baptizing because, one, water was plentiful there, two, by the way, water's plentiful there, it's a strong argument. For credo, baptism. 
You don't need a lot of water to sprinkle. He's baptizing because water is plentiful there. He's baptizing too because people were coming and being baptized. And then the parenthetical explanation over all this is he's baptizing because John had not yet been put in prison. So the three explanations are plain enough, but I think there are two ways of asking the why that you get the answer because that make this much more significant. I think John intends to answer, as we often have seen, John has a depth of meaning again and again. He's asking, he's answering why, saying because, two different ways. So the obvious one is, why is John baptizing here at Enon? Well, because there's a lot of water there. Because there's people there. Because he's not in prison. But as you start to read this passage, I think he's also asking the question, is, question why is John baptizing at all? Jesus is baptizing now. He came to make a way for Jesus, and Jesus is here. So why is John still doing his thing if Jesus is on the scene? John's baptism had two purposes. First, he baptized, Mark 1-4, with the baptism of repentance. And that's not emphasized anywhere in John. That's emphasized in all the synoptic gospels. It has an undertone in John, but it's not the emphasis in John. The emphasis in John is what John said in 131. John the Baptist tells us he came for this purpose, he says, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And the way he was revealed to Israel was the Father said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend, that's him. So John came so that Christ might be revealed. That's the focus in, in John's gospel so far. Christ has been revealed. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And since John has said that, our focus has been exclusively on Jesus. But now we have John show back up for this last testimony. So uh, what's happening? The lamp is fading. He's soon to be extinguished. But before he does, we have this last testimony set before us. And with this setting, the spark that ignites things in verse 25 a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification and you're just left hanging with that in so many ways who's this Jew you're never told that's all you know about him what exactly was this discussion well it's over purification that's all you've got. But those two words, you don't know anything of, of what's behind them, and yet you know the significance and the meaning of them in a very real way. Those, there are two words there that are charged with meaning. Turn to chapter 2 and verse 6, the wedding at Cana, and this, there's the same little details there. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Jew purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And that comes on the heels of you looking at John baptizing and his baptism being spoken of and all the questions coming at him. I have little doubt that the substance of what this discussion was between this Jew and John's disciples over purification, that it was very similar to the question, the discussion that came to John in chapter 1, where some sent by the Pharisees say, then why are you baptizing? Chapter 1 and verse 25. Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
Except this time, the question of identity, authority, meaning is ratcheted up because it's not just John who's baptizing. It's Jesus who is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing more than John. So they come asking essentially the same kind of questions. While there were, to catch something of why this would concern them so, there were water rites of purification associated with temple worship according to the law. That's true. But baptizing Jews was not something practiced except by the Essene community. That was that sect of Jews that you're familiar with, probably associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, living around the Dead Sea. They're the ones who practiced that. Among Jews otherwise, baptism was something for proselyte Gentiles, not Jews. And this probably stemmed from 2 Kings 5, where you have Elisha telling Naaman to dip himself seven times in the river Jordan. And the Gentile baptized himself. So here are Jews, Jesus and John, although chapter 4 and verse 2 will make it plain, Jesus himself is not baptizing, his disciples are as his agents. So here you have John and Jesus, these two rabbis, Jews, baptizing Jews. So, it's no wonder this Jew comes to John's disciples and they have this talk about purification. And that Jesus' baptism was part of the discussion is plain because after this discussion, verse 26, they come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. What are we to make of that statement? How was that statement made? Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Or, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Was it a statement of joy or sadness? Was it a statement, maybe not sadness, but confusion, concern, bewilderment? And I think as you read John's statement, it's not hard to see there's a note of rebuke in it. Consider the way they say, look, he, to the way John said, behold the Lamb. When John said, behold, the Lamb, he's wanting to draw attention to Christ. When these disciples come to John and say, look, he, they're wanting to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is drawing attention. And then further, contrast the way John's earlier disciples that we encountered responded to John's witness to the way these two are responding to his witness. John 1, 35 through 37. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. What's bewildering is how these disciples' own testimony speaks against them. He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. So I think Edward Clink is right when he paints their folly in this way. They're like a bride who was concerned that the best man of the bridegroom was not getting any attention at the wedding. We wag our heads at these disciples But do you not see the mirror of the Word bearing forth your own reflection here? How foolishly we want to herd the Spirit and isolate His power to our ministry. 
as though we could tame the wind. Are you saddened when the evangelical church it preaches the gospel you might rightly recognize there are some significant things that concern you otherwise but she preaches the gospel are you saddened when the evangelical church down the street brings in a host of converts true genuinely professions as far as we can tell the gospel was preached real faith expressed in that gospel and you're disappointed when your friend is saved is there a tinge of sadness that it happened over there instead of right here you might have some real concerns Praise God He's saved. I hope He's discipled in a way a little bit better, more more life-giving. You might have those concerns, but it shouldn't choke your joy. Angels in heaven will rejoice over that soul. You shouldn't check your joy. Do you root for theologians and pastors? As though they were on your team, part of, part of the team you're proud of? Do you attend a conference touting a particular speaker? He's the best. And you want others to concur, rooting for your favorite. Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians seems as pertinent here and applicable today as ever. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there's no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? God forbid such rivalry. May our spirit be that of Paul's. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Two people, he's not speaking about the motive. The motive is something to address. Paul is simply wanting to speak of they're both Preaching Christ. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. May our response to Jesus lifted up. Drawing men to Himself by the word of the cross and the power of the Spirit be that of John. May we rejoice. John gives three explanations for his joy. Three things that underlie and lead to his rejoicing in this situation. First, John rejoices because he recognizes the sovereignty of God. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not one thing apart from God's giving. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. Matthew 10.29 Pilate could have no authority over Christ unless it was given him from above. John 19.11 And no one has anything except what he's received. 1 Corinthians 4.7 God is sovereign over all. You have not one thing. You have earned nothing 
You've merited, grasped, attained nothing of your own. It's all a gift. I worked. You were given health and life and breath and gifts. Everything you did to get whatever it was you thought you got, you received as a gift. It's all a gift. Envy of man is rebellion against God. John, like Moses, sees the Lord's sovereign hand in this and it steals his heart about the whole ordeal. Like whenever Joshua came to Moses and complained, there are two men in the camp whom the spirits come upon. They're prophesying. They're not part of the official group that we are recognizing and authorizing. There are these two men outside. And they're prophesying. And he says, stop them. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that Yahweh would put His Spirit on them. The depths of John's joy here, though, go much deeper than Moses's ever could have because he recognizes not only a superior gifting happening over here, he realizes a superior receiver of that superior gifting. Second reason why he rejoices is not only that God is sovereign, but verse 28, Christ is supreme. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before Him. Now, put aside that this is Christ. This should still be our humble disposition regardless. You remember what Paul said in Philippians? Count others more significant than yourselves. John is dealing with the one who is more significant than all, altogether. John is not the Christ. He's been sent before the Christ. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. When a loyal, loving herald goes before the king, he is not disappointed when once people hear him, they pay him no more mind after that. They move to the side and they look down the street away from him. That's the point. If, if John were a fish, this is the water he's meant to swim in. And this is oxygen to your lungs. To breathe this out is breathing in life as a saint. This is what it means to live, to use your breath to say, we're not. He is. Don't look to us. Look to Christ. We are just a voice. We're a much lesser voice than John. We're just a voice. He is the Word of God. John was sent before. We have been sent after but all of us are sent as those below to speak of the one who was from above and who was lifted up. And then third, to illustrate both of those points, the supremacy of Christ and the sovereignty of God, the sovereign giver and the supreme receiver, to emphasize them both, third reason why John rejoices in bringing it to that point of joy is an illustration. It's really not a third explanation. It's an illustration of what he said, bringing it into focus. It's a glorious illustration. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Sovereign giver. The bridegroom is given a bride. The supreme receiver. 
The focus is on the bridegroom, not the friend. The friend of the bridegroom would be something of what like we think of as the best man, except he's important. He has a role. He's not just there to assist and stand beside the, the bridegroom, hand him. He, he is presiding in a way over the wedding, and he is there to ensure that the bride is presented to the bridegroom. John was sent before Jesus to prepare the bride for the bridegroom. And now these crowds going out to Jesus to be baptized are a picture of him receiving his bride. In 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 10, 37-39. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or, Jesus opens up that glorious prayer in John 17 saying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation. Uh, Excuse me, I messed up there. I read the end. Jesus opens this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's 17, 1 and 2. He opens his prayer that way. He closes his prayer this way. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus, uh, John sees Jesus receiving his bride and he rejoices. John had been laboring and preparing this bride and the bride's coming to him. John is pouring his life out for this bride to get her ready for the bridegroom. And now once she's left him and is going to the bridegroom, he rejoices greatly. Or more strictly translated, he rejoices with joy. He joy joys. That's what's what is happening. And this strongly echoes, uh, echoes an episode in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, the disciples of John come to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and, the, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. John is the last of the old wineskin, and he's about to be poured out. He stands at this transition place, and now he sees the new wine of the kingdom ready to flow. The bridegroom receives his bride, and he rejoices. And that's how we come to the last must of this great chapter. The first must concerned fallen man. Chapter 3 and verse 7, you must be born again. The second must concerned the Son of Man. The Son of Man must be lifted up, verse 14. And the final must concerns redeemed man. He must increase, but I must decrease. And what a paradoxical glory you have here. That as the lamp fades, it is then that He shines brightest. When all eyes look down the street at the king, no one paying any attention to the herald anymore, he's being forgotten and walking away. That's when the herald is the greatest. That's when he's best. 
That's when he's highest and most glorious is whenever no one pays any attention to him anymore. And that's what's happening with John. Looking back to John's statement, I am not the Christ, Edward Clink writes, it was only at the point of his not that the Baptist could truly be who he was supposed to be. A messenger for the message and a witness to the true I am. When John said, I am not the light, that is when he was a burning and shining lamp. And so saints, do you want to live? Do you really want to exist as you were meant to exist? Then fill your lungs with John's exclamation. He must increase I must decrease, fade and shine bright, fading, herald and be forgotten. God is sovereign, Christ is supreme. Declare, we are not, Christ is. Our joy is the joy of telling others of His glory so that no one's impressed by us anymore. They're looking at an all-glorious Christ. But our joy in telling others of that glory is the joy of the bride speaking of her groom. We speak speak as those who have drunk the new wine of the kingdom. And so let us be zealous for no glory save that of our bridegroom. So verses 22 through 30 concern the fading lamp, and the final verses concern the rising sun, verses 30 through, 31 through 36. And so just as I took verses, but who's, who's bearing witness here? Just as I took verses 21 through, six, verses 16 through 21, to be John the Apostle's commentary on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, I take verses 31 through 36 to be John's commentary on John the Baptist's conversation with his disciples. John, I believe, is... You come to chapter 3, and it's, it's this introductory portion of the Gospel of John... And it closes out and it's bracketed by Jesus and John and how the two relate. So John opened up his gospel in the prologue, chapter 1, 1 through 18. He opened up by speaking of the relation of John the Baptist and Jesus. And then he goes into John's witness. And now he closes out this kind of introductory portion in reverse order, speaking of the witness of John and then the relation of John and Jesus. John 1.8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Or 1.15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And now we have two statements nearly identical. They are identical in meaning concerning Jesus and John, verse 31. He who So, two identical statements about Jesus sandwiched in between is a statement about John. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. I think that's aimed particularly at John. He who comes from heaven is above all. Two statements about Jesus, one about John. More Jesus, less John. John decreasing, Jesus increasing. John, his belonging to the earth is not the same as saying he's worldly. Or he's of this world. The word used here doesn't have the negative connotations that world does of fallenness. It just has something of of the idea of lowliness. Like in verse 12. If I've told you of earthly things, and when Jesus said, I've told you of earthly things, remember, that was the new birth from above. If 
I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can I tell you, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So because John is of this earth, he speaks in an earthly way. Not that that means that it's not heavenly revelation any more than Jesus whenever he spoke of earthly things to Nicodemus. It wasn't heavenly revelation. It's this. John speaks secondhand. But Jesus speaks firsthand. He's from above. That's the contrast. Verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Verse 32. He, the one who is from heaven, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He bears witness So you have John of this earth speaking in an earthly way. Jesus from heaven speaking of what he has seen and heard. Listen again to Jesus' words to Nicodemus in their fuller context. 3.11-13 Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Who's the we there? It's a heavenly we. In John's gospel, witness is this key word. We've seen it so many times already. We'll see it more. But witness is something so far we've only seen John do and Jesus do. In the synoptic gospels, that's where we see Jesus send out the 70. He sends out the 12. That doesn't happen in John. The witness of the disciples, the apostles, and John is always something future. So John is fading. Jesus is rising. And he says, we bear witness of what we have seen. We speak of what we know. Who's this we? The Father bears witness to Christ. John 8, 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The Son bears witness to Himself. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to do accomplish the very works that I'm... uh, uh, given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 5.36 The Spirit testifies to Christ. John 15.26 The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father He will bear witness about me. So Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Or as John put it in the prologue, the Word, remember it's the Word who in the beginning was with God and who was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, now that instance is speaking of Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side. Let me read it again, understanding that. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So Jesus' superior witness. Another reason why John would rejoice is because everything he's bearing testimony to, Christ does better. How does the world respond to this heavenly witness? It's both rejected and received, verse 32. Yet no one receives his testimony Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony. This is part of a series where John has been putting before us these two reactions. Rejection and reception. And rejection always comes first because it is default. And reception comes second because it is a work of the grace of God. John One, the prologue, John the Apostle writing says, 
He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in John 3, 20 and 21, again, I've argued that those are John, the apostle's words there. So John wrote that prologue with those two responses. Now he's writing this. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So John brings this to us once again. This time, though, he doesn't elaborate on the rejection. Just tells us that it is. Yet no one receives his testimony. But concerning the reception, he says something startling. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. A seal certifies, it affirms, it it confirms, it marks. And so, that being so, we could say that verse 33 is saying something like, whoever receives his testimony testifies God is true. Sets a seal to it. Whoever receives his testimony testifies God is true. The point is not that God needs our witness. Jesus already said that's not the case we saw. He'll say it in John chapter 5. He doesn't need the witness of man. But I think it's so powerful to say what the nature of your witness is. How is it that we testify God is true? We testify God is true by receiving the testimony of the one who came from above. Jesus' testimony is giving. The way you testify is by receiving. How do you testify God is true? By receiving the testimony of the one sent by the Father. Our witness is receiving. Jesus' witness is giving. Jesus' witness is superior to ours. His testimony is necessary for ours to be. Our testimony is the receiving of His testimony, setting our seal that God is true. And the reason why Jesus' testimony received by us communicates God is true is because Jesus speaks the very words of God. He speaks as one who has the Spirit without measure to say those very words. He speaks as the one who is from above and above all. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true for he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure clarifying statement to the Son. Remember John testified He who sent me to baptize with water, the Father, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. We see throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit coming upon the prophets, the priests, the king. We see it come upon Saul, depart from Saul. We see David praying, remove not your Spirit from me. In that capacity as king and the Lord's anointed is the meaning thereof, I believe. But Jesus receives the Spirit and it remains on Him. He receives the Spirit without measure. He is so anointed that He is the anointer, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He so receives the Spirit. And so hearing His words as the one who's from above, speaking of heavenly things in an earthly way that we can grasp, receiving that testimony is you 
testifying God is true. And behind the Spirit-anointed witness of Jesus is the love of the Father who gives all things into His hands. Verse 35. When the Father gives Jesus His bride, He with that gives Him all things. Now Jesus forever has been sovereign and Lord over all. But this receiving is a receiving as the redemptive king of God's people. And as God's king over his people, he receives all things in that capacity. And this is why Paul could tell us that when we're in union with Christ, this is true. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Your king has been given all and you're wed to him so that all your liabilities having been transferred to Christ, they're borne away. And all of his credit and merit and inheritance is yours. Luke 10, 21 through 24 ties so many of these themes together. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Lord, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now John closes by pressing these two responses to the witness of and concerning Christ, pressing these two responses on us once more. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Your response to the witness of Christ has immediate, infinite, and eternal consequences. Immediate, and infinite, and eternal. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not will, he has it. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. Saints, eternal life is not something that just lies ahead of you. It's something you have right now. And sinner, the wrath of God is not something that awaits you. It is something that hangs on you. Remaining right now. Your response to this testimony laid before you right now. Your response has immediate, infinite, and eternal consequences. Eternal life is to know God. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know Him, know Him right now. That's life that's laid in front of you by this witness. It's right here. Whosoever would believe will receive this life. This is what's before you. To know Christ the way a bride knows a bridegroom. To know the Father the way 
a son, to know the Father the way he knows. A son knows the Father. To know the Spirit as a temple indwelt. Eternal life is not just about quantity of life. It's about quality of life. And it's something that's held out in front of you. Right now. See Christ. See His supremacy over all. See Him above all. See Him lifted up. He's altogether lovely. There is none more glorious. And it's a delusion for you to think that there is anything in this world worth going after so that if you get it, that's life other than Christ. It's a delusion. This is life. Anything else is not. If you will not believe This is what your existence is. The wrath of God remains on you. The wrath of the one who's all glorious, all lovely, remains on you. Not the wrath of some abhorrent, despicable, wretched God, but of the one who is perfect, glorious, It's the wrath of the one who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. You cannot, you cannot stop his wrath. You cannot hide from his wrath. You cannot evade his wrath. The wrath that you stand under is the one whose love is the best thing, the truest thing, the most lovely thing, the most beautiful thing. It abides on you. And so it matters not how much you may live it up. It's a grand delusion. Such that you come to the end, having it all, You can only say with Solomon, vanity, oh vanity, all is vanity if you have not Christ. But it need not be so. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I've said that John's witness was a fading one. I should rather have said, It's John's witnessing that fades. His testimony abides still. The testimony of John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and of Jesus Himself abides still in the Word of God and the Spirit's anointing thereof. Because everything spoken of here abides without decay. This light has not faded You have this testimony of Christ set before you. And I would plead with you. Receive it. Set your seal to it. God is true. Receive this testimony. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey the summons to repentance and faith. And you will know life. Which is to say, you will know God. In Christ, you'll know the Father as your Father. You'll know the Son and His love as a bride does the bridegroom. And you will know the presence of the Spirit as an indwelt temple. This is life. This is what's held before you in the testimony of Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that 
Everything is completely eclipsed right now before every soul here. And Christ is in clear focus. I pray the faith of your saints is strengthened with a kind of zeal and jealousy for His glory and not our own. And I pray for any lost soul here that your Spirit blows now, grants the new birth, And they believe. And they know you. That we would have the blessing of rejoicing. And the bridegroom receiving his bride. And we would see those souls come to Jesus. And then wish to be baptized by His agents, for the glory of Your name. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.